Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing Amazon's new Tolkien adaptation, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Set during Middle-earth's Second Age, the first eight-episode season cost half a billion dollars, featuring a massive ensemble cast including iconic names like Galadriel and Elrond, alongside new characters created for the show. And um, for listeners who have heard our extensive Lord of the Rings podcasts, I'm sure you can guess we have a lot of thoughts here. We have only seen the first two episodes, which just premiered. So we will discuss those. We'll kind of discuss more spoilery things toward the end of this podcast. But um, I don't really feel like they're very spoilery episodes. Like, it's not like there's a huge twist. What spoilers are you Amazon talking about? sent this really intensive embargo letter just be like, don't mention anything specific in your reviews. And I'm like, what's to say? Yeah, I mean, we won't go into the details of the press stuff for this, but they were clearly very paranoid about anyone leaking the show. Never have I encountered such an inconvenient screener acquisition process. <laughs> oh my god, it was unbelievable. Sometimes when screeners are really inconvenient or they make them available late, just as some inside baseball, that's because the studio is like, oh, we think this is really bad and we don't want critics to have access to it. And in this case, we'll get into our responses to the show. I didn't like this show at all, but I don't think it's like, I don't think Amazon was like, we don't want anyone to see this thing we spent half a billion dollars on. It clearly was a result of just like, paranoia because they had spent so much time and money on it. And there's just been this sort of like aura about this show kind of from when it was announced five years ago that they had bought the rights to some of this Tolkien material for $250 million, that the stakes are really high for Amazon, like they really want this to be a huge hit. And it feels to me like within the show and kind of outside of the show in terms of how Amazon is marketing it and sort of deploying it to the press that you feel that sense of stress, which is not great. Like that's not what you want. Because it's definitely true that pouring a ton of money into a project and pouring a ton of money into marketing a project can make it successful. But this seems, I mean, to be clear, I enjoyed this show more than Morgan, but it also just seems like the latest of the past decade of people being like, we're going to do the new Game of Thrones. And... You can't do that by just making a really expensive fantasy show, you know? (laughs) But yeah, as you said, they spent an inhuman amount of money on just buying the rights to this. And what they purchased the rights to was the Lord of the Rings appendices. They don't technically have the rights to the Silmarillion itself. So this show kind of draws its canon from official Tolkien history from this period, the Second Age, which is like thousands of years before Frodo Baggins shows up. But they couldn't really use very much direct dialogue because that's not something that appears in the appendices. So they kind of repurposed elements of other Tolkien dialogue they had access to and then wrote the rest of it originally. And also they kind of created a bunch of new characters, which is fine in my opinion, but it's kind of a hodgepodge of canon and new material and compressing stuff historically so you don't have humans dying off all the time. So should we explain what the Silmarillion is for listeners who perhaps don't know that? (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, the Silmarillion, I actually have only read a small part of, but I live with someone who's read it like 20 times. So I've kind of absorbed some from osmosis, but it's sort of a book of interconnected 
myths set in Middle-earth. Yes, and I did read The Silmarillion when I was around 13 because I was hardcore into Tolkien, and I just had to write an explainer about this for work. So I am well-versed in the specifics of what Amazon does and does not own. And The Silmarillion basically is like the first age. So he broke it up into like four ages, and each age ends with like the defeat of a great sort of evil power. And that's the really early kind of ancient history stuff that is very mythical, as you say. A lot of it is really fun. A lot of it's quite boring, but it's a lot of the sort of like foundational stuff about the formation and history of Middle Earth and this world that he created. And then the third age is The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And then the second age is the sort of mushy stuff in between, which he basically lays out in a timeline in the appendices. It's like 150 pages is the material that they have the rights to for this show. They also own the rights to the trilogy, but obviously they're not going to remake those. And the appendices is like stuff that happened after the Lord of the Rings, random stuff about how elvish and like dwarf languages work. And then like this timeline stuff and stuff about like the history of like Rohan and Gondor. So there is a lot of information. I definitely read this stuff when I was again, like 13 because I was a nerd, but it's not a, book or a narrative. So it's frankly nuts that they're making five seasons of television and spending billions of dollars on something with such a sort of small foundation. And I think from a certain context, you could look at that and be like, oh, there's so much room for them to play around and be creative and come up with sort of new material. But That's really hard when you're coming at this and the material that does exist, which is The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, is like a beloved classic of literature, right? Yeah, so I think here, if they were approaching it from a fan fiction attitude where you're like, I'm so excited to expand these characters, right? Because like, obviously the writing team is kind of a mix of a few people who are extreme, intense talking heads and people who are just professional TV writers who got hired because they're good at writing TV. But it doesn't really have that vibe of people being really excited about the characters. Like the characters are by far the weakest part of this. It's very much about monetizing people's affection for Middle Earth. I just filed my review today as we're reviewing this. And the way I kind of framed it was, if we kind of look at this as a literary adaptation, it is far closer to just a franchise spinoff for something like Star Wars than it is to something like a new interpretation of Pride and Prejudice. It's very clearly trying to resemble the Peter Jackson movies. And there's a reason for that is because Peter Jackson initially was kind of meant to be attached and then got ejected from the project in some way or another. But like the people who are the key production designers from the Lord of the Rings movies are involved here. And a lot of the technical and stylistic stuff, which we will go into in a minute, is like so obviously trying to copy these films, which is kind of a fool's errand because as we said in our Lord of the Rings podcasts, those movies are extremely complex and impressive on an artistic level. And you can't make another piece of good art by copying what another piece of good art did before. You know, you have to try and strike out on an individual level. And this show, based on the first two episodes anyway, it doesn't feel super distinctive because it's got so many similarities. And also we're viewing it 
you know, after 15 to 20 years of other fantasy media that's drawing from Peter Jackson's inspiration. You know, we've all watched like these other shows like The Wheel of Time. I mean, you know, we've not all watched The Wheel of Time. I've watched The Wheel of Time. You know, I'd like <laughs> to watch for yeah, stuff like that. That is essentially like, there's no avoiding Lord of the Rings, right? But yeah, before we go into that, shall we introduce the showrunners? Yes, why don't you do that? Because I have no idea who the fuck yeah. these people are. <laughs> so these guys, I remember when they were first announced, I was like, fucking hell, right? Because while I have no knowledge about what these men are like on a personal level, they're kind of this perennial pair of names that show up a lot if you kind of have to do franchise coverage. Because if you look at their IMDb, they actually have zero other credits, which is incredible to consider in the context of this being such an expensive project is also something they share in common with the much criticized showrunners of game of thrones who are also a pair of white guys who got the rights to this huge franchise and then adapted it they at least had some experience like i think it was did benioff had written the 25th hour and like whatever this is truly like so with jd payne and, and patrick mckay they've been together for 20 years since high school they've written 15 screenplays together which crucially have not been produced and i think that includes the stuff they have worked on but not been credited by so like technically on imdb they have star trek beyond listed but they're not actually the credited writers they did a draft of the screenplay that was not made but like for union reasons you know obviously they got paid and stuff and they've also been attached to several other blockbuster projects including flash gordon and godzilla versus kong but once again we're never the actual credited lead writers so like they have a lot of connections they have worked extensively and been paid for that work but it's not something that's seen in the public eye and i kind of respect that because like there were a lot of people who like it takes a while to get a break and getting kicked off a blockbuster doesn't necessarily mean you've done a bad job but at the same time this is a tv writing gig which is different from doing a movie it's also a show running gig which is different from just being a tv writer so like it is frustrating when you think that there are other people who are like not too inexperienced white guys who could be the showrunners of this show. But anyway, that's their backstory. They are in charge of a writing team that includes Jennifer Hutchison, who wrote for Breaking Bad, Jason Cahill, who wrote for The Sopranos, and Stephanie Folsom, who wrote Thor Ragnarok. And the first two episodes are directed by a very big film director, J.A. Bayona, who is best known for directing The Orphanage, but has also done sort of blockbustery stuff like Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So that's the general creative team. Yes. And it's, as you say, it's hard with these people who have just been working and working in Hollywood and not really had their name on things because it's hard for us to know exactly what was going on. I do, however, think it is fair of us to be annoyed (laughs) to see this happen, especially in the context of the Game of Thrones thing. And like, there are other examples of this, but these are particularly egregious ones where you just have these white men who don't really have the experience to be in charge of something like this. And this is a problem in television production in general, that like, there's just not enough happening on a long term basis, like a lot of shows are miniseries or don't run for many seasons to sort of train people to become showrunners. But the thought that Amazon would spend billions of dollars on something and entrust it to these people who I'm sure are talented and also like maybe lovely. I don't know them, but it's just like, what, what are we doing here? When you are a screenwriter who wants to create their own show, invariably the advice is you need to start with something small and personal. 
Yes. <laughs> you know, yep. you need to write something that's about your own experiences, which in the case of anyone from a minority demographic is like, you have to write about your identity as a minority, you know? Yes. Uh, and it's like, these guys come along and get Lord of the Rings. So yes, there is a certain uh, frustration attached to their role here. But let's talk about the actual show itself instead yeah. of griping about these men. <laughs> well, and part of my gripe, though I will in this statement move on to the show, is that, so I, as I said, really didn't like this. I didn't think it was like an embarrassment in the sense that it looked great. And again, we'll talk about the technical stuff. And there were one or two elements I thought were fine in terms of the plot. But overall, I was super turned off by it. I actively disliked watching it. And I'm not really the demographic for this. Like, I wouldn't have watched if I hadn't had to watch for work. So people who are excited about this should definitely take my criticisms with some salt. But it felt so, like, engineered in a studio lab by people who were like, what do audiences like about The Lord of the Rings? Like, let's write a list on a whiteboard and then figure out how to put it all in these first couple episodes, as opposed to people who are having real ideas. And I think anyone who has had experience doing creative stuff, be that writing or whatever, knows that it's not like you're just having thrilling inspiration all of the time. Like there is a level at which when you're writing a big project, there's a, there's calculation that goes into that, right? And like you're trying to figure out how to fit everything you want in. And certainly something like this, because it does cost so much, there has to be some of that sort of strategizing going on. But if it's really successful, you should be able to pull that off and sort of trick the viewers into not feeling any of it, right? It should be kind of hidden. Yeah. And this, I was like, okay, so they stole that sequence from The Fellowship of the Ring, and they stole that sequence from The Fellowship of the Ring, and this relationship is obviously modeled on this thing in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I was just like, this is not interesting to me. Like, I could just be watching the movies, so... Yeah, so I agree with this. Like, I kind of go over this as well in my review, where it's like a great deal of this, as I said, kind of on a technical level, is kind of trying to copy individual elements from the films um, and evoke nostalgia. And I think kind of part of the contrast between our two attitudes here is like, because you are the world's biggest diehard fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and have thought deeply for your entire life about why those movies are so good. Like, it's what turned you into an Oscar junkie. We've talked about this a lot in our Lord of the Rings podcasts, and I also love Lord of the Rings a lot, but um, both my interests and my job lead me to watch a lot more sci-fi fantasy TV, and it's generally what I'm watching. So, like, I think I have kind of a more relaxed attitude to it. Like, I think this show is pretty weak on a writing level, but I was also able to just enjoy some beautiful landscapes and, you know, that sort of thing. It's like lovely gowns, some cool fight scenes. Um, but at the same time, like it is extremely apparent sort of the things they're trying to do on a very unoriginal level. So like a couple of the details that were very noticeable to me are the way the camera pans over the landscapes is very obviously echoing the cinematography we know from the Lord of the Rings, like going over the mountains and stuff. On a costume level, obviously they're not doing the same costumes, it's in a different historic period, but there's details in there which is like so obviously Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings that 
it's distinct from other similar fantasy franchises. So the one thing that really jumped out to me is the elves wearing crushed velvet. Crushed velvet is not a fabric you see in movies ever. And you oh, it's like distinctively elvish. And they have that in both of these. Kind of the style, the weaponry and the music in particular. The way the music is structured in the original Lord of the Rings films by Howard Shore, it's an absolute masterpiece of composition. It's one of the greatest pieces of film music ever made. And he does this thing where he uses different genres for like different locations and different characters. So the hobbits are Celtic folk music and there's these sort of really eerie choral motifs for the elves. There's brass fanfares for Gondor. There's symphonic stuff that feels very 19th century and kind of like Wagner for a lot of the epic historical stuff. So there's like, it's an extremely complex piece of musical writing. And the composer for this show is Bear McCreary, who is one of the greatest TV composers currently working. He is absolutely incredible. And I think the work he's done in this is very impressive. Like it's fantastic to listen to. It works really well in context, but it is absolutely just a copy, like a very intentional copy. So it's not like it's the same melody. He is creating entirely original music, but he is using that entire structural concept as a blueprint, which to me is just like, you know, because I I love him so much as a composer. And I'm also just like, this is so indicative of the whole project at hand, which is trying to copy someone else's work, like pouring money into something by hiring the most talented people you can do to recreate something that, you know, the audience will have nostalgia for without actively plagiarizing. Well, right. And in terms of, it's so interesting that I said that thing about them kind of copying the movies and you immediately focused on and pulled out all of these technical elements that were so similar. And my original thought had been like, okay, here are all of the sequences plot-wise that they have directly copied. Like we just went to different things, but are both correct. So my examples would be that there's a very brief sequence right at the beginning um, that we'll talk about when we talk about the characters. But aside from that, basically the opening of the movie is like, Galadriel doing a voiceover over this like historical prologue explaining what's going on, which is exactly how the Fellowship of the Rings begins. She and a bunch of other people wind up going to Moria. I think it is Moria, not another like dwarf place. And it's abandoned, strangely. And then some trolls show up. And it's like this sequence is exactly the same as the sequence in The Lord of the Rings. I think there is literally a line, like I think one of them says we should never have come here, which is a line of dialogue that they say in The Fellowship of the Ring at that point. And then the relationship between Elrond and the dwarf Durin, which again, we'll talk more about the relationships in a second, but it's got this kind of like, the elf and the dwarf are having playful banter and blah, blah. And I was like, okay, like, yes, we all know that this is meant to be like, oh, it's like Legolas and Ghibli, right? And then obviously the Hobbit stuff is very similar to the Hobbit stuff in Fellowship also. There's a big fireworks sequence, which is obviously part of the early stages of Fellowship of the Ring. And like the mark of Sauron is like on a bunch of stuff and it like pulses and then people kind of have a weird vision. And I was like, you literally just made this up so that they have something that functions as the eye of Sauron, even though that's not like a thing in Tolkien. And Taken as a whole, all of this just felt kind of like creatively inert to me because it just made me think immediately of all those other things in the movie that because they weren't, I mean, obviously they were copying from the book because it was an adaptation, but they just were kind of themselves. And this, it felt like they were trying 
trying to recreate that stuff, but not in a canny way. Like, I was thinking about um, The Force Awakens, which is so obviously kind of redoing the first Star Wars yeah. movie. Like, there's a Death Star, and it's it's clear that that's what's happening, but it's in a way where it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it's sort of inviting you as the audience to participate in that nostalgia. Whereas this kind of felt like it was just kind of happening and they weren't acknowledging it in the same way. Like, I, it just felt very tonally bizarre to me in a way that I personally did not find fun to watch. Yeah, because, like, with something like Lord of the Rings, you don't want it to be self-aware and commenting on itself. Like, you need Lord of the Rings to be extremely sincere, which this is. But it's also very shallow. And yep. it isn't driven by either an interest in the character's personal journeys because like they're so kind of simple or a really deep thematic interest in the historical period because as we said there was this kind of like spoiler warning thing we got from Amazon you know the the Amazon embargo was like make sure not to spoil any details and after watching these episodes which as I say I did reasonably enjoy I was just thinking, okay, well, I can't put any spoilers in my review, but there's hardly anything to say about these characters that isn't already their one-line character descriptions on Wikipedia. Like, there's a few details that technically are spoilers, but the characterization is so simple in these episodes that there's, like, not enough psychological depth to be, like, anything beyond a Rondir is an elven soldier who has a secret affair with a woman, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I think, well, to... Just before we, again, really get into the details of the characters and the plot, I would say part of the issue they're having is you're mentioning, like, the details of the historical period, which is a bit funny for it, because we both we both are kind of talking about this and, like, obviously this is all made up. <laughs> but part of the magic of The Lord of the Rings, the books especially, but the films really capture this too, is that, like, Tolkien spent his entire adult life obsessed with this to the degree where, like, it seems like he kind of really believed it was real almost yeah and i mean he made up all these fucking languages like he he has this genuine real history you know <laughs> right and i was looking through the appendices the other day because i was writing this explainer for bustle and it's amazing it's like he's like well there's not as much documentation remaining from the second age which is why we don't have as much information but like this is what we do have and like his little timeline some of it's like this is circa this date but we're not really sure like it's completely written as if all of this is real i think we mentioned on one of our lord of the rings podcasts that this is also the part of the book where he's like oh yeah all of this has been translated from all of these other languages so like the names like Mary Brandybuck and like Frodo Baggins, their actual names are like some complete just nonsense gibberish. That, like, <laughs> but they've been like translated in quotes into English, right? And I think part of what's so captivating about those books that Peter Jackson and his team completely got in those movies was this sense of a mythic past, right? So like the scene in The Fellowship where they're rowing down the river and they get to the Argonath and at the big statues that are sort of like beat up but they're still there and that there was this big civilization and it's kind of crumbling a bit that is so powerful and it gives the characters a sense of purpose and meaning that goes beyond their sort of small task while the small task also is incredibly meaningful and is like driving the plot and that also ties into the elves being these sort of like otherworldly beings that have just been around forever and they've seen so much, right? And um, there's a real sense of 
sadness to those books because this the past is sort of slipping away. And obviously the end of The Lord of the Rings is famously really, really melancholy, even though they win. And this show, I think partially because they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion. So they're kind of just slipping around what happened before this. But also it's just a problem with the writing. Like there's just no sense of that at all. Yeah, I mean, the elf thing is something I mentioned in my review. And I think we talked a little bit about before, which is it's partly a, a writing thing, but it's also partly just like, it's very difficult to make a character that seems like they're immortal and otherworldly. They need to have a noticeably different attitude to their own existence, to a human character, while still being played by a human actor. Like this is the problem they had with the Sandman TV show, right? Where it's like you have to hire an actor who can embody a comic book character who is usually drawn as like a seven foot skeleton that speaks in black and white print, right? Like it's like, that's not really possible, you know? And with this, with the Lord of the Rings movies, they do things with sort of visual effects and the way Kate Blanchett's voice is altered and that sort of thing to make these characters very alarming sometimes. Like sometimes the elves feel very whimsical. Sometimes they're really scary. Sometimes they're impressively arrogant. And that is because we're seeing them from the perspective of a hobbit. But in a TV show where we're seeing a lot of the story from the perspective of an elf, that makes that a lot harder. And also, you know, it's difficult to write those characters in a way that makes them distinct from a human because every TV writer is trained to make their characters feel relatable and fallible. And it's like, no, they can have feelings, but they've got to be elvish feelings. They can't be human feelings, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, with more time that passes and the more sort of fantasy stuff like this I see, and as you said, I watch way less of this kind of thing than you do, the more impressed I am by those movies because it feels to me like they just pulled off a total miracle. But I felt like it really doesn't work in this. And I think they hired a lot of really talented actors, some of whom I know from other things and some of whom I haven't seen before, but like I am not casting any aspersions on them because I just think it's an impossible task. Like, I don't think the writing is very good. I feel like the way they approached like the elves is just to have them kind of speak in like a weird monotone. (laughs) And It's really hard to get invested when they don't feel real and when you kind of are expecting in your head for them to have this otherworldly feeling and they just kind of feel like dudes. Like, that's kind of not what I want. Yeah, I I mean, mean, we should discuss these characters individually, but I just want to kind of make a comparison with Game of Thrones, the dreaded Game of Thrones, which I realize is like, I'm sure there's going to be people who are like on Twitter complaining about every review that compares these two shows because they have fundamentally different creative intentions. But in terms of the way these two episodes function as a pilot, I mean, actually, it's literally a full quarter of the series because it's an eight episode first season. So like, this is a significant chunk of the story. But um, the way this is structured is that there's like four or five subplots that are all kind of introduced at once. So there's one with Galadriel, there's one with Elrond, there's one with Nori, who is a precursor to the Hobbits. She's a Harfoot, like a teenage girl. And, um, and there's one which is about Arondir and his human lover. And they're going to go to Numenor soon, so we're going to get a bunch of Numenorean characters. But that's like four distinct subplots, each of which have either one protagonist or in the case of Arondir and his girlfriend, two protagonists. So those are like the headline characters, but none of them are really interacting apart from there's a short period where Galadriel and Elrond are speaking to each other. So immediately you don't have relationships between the four or five main characters. 
all of their individual relationships are with their own separate supporting casts. So that gives far less screen time to their relationships. And also like a lot of the individual screen time is like action scenes or like introducing the world building or stuff like that. And when you look at Game of Thrones, like Game of Thrones is on a similar scope because you've got these massive political conflicts where there's tons of individual factions that have their own supporting casts. But the first episode is extremely compelling because it primarily focuses on really intensive relationships between characters that are going to be interacting for the rest of the show's run. So like, obviously I watched this like seven or eight years ago or whatever, but like I remember it well because, you know, you've got one faction that are going all the way across Westeros to go to like the Northern Kingdom. So you've got these two factions, you immediately see their interactions, you see like some of them are marrying some of the others, there's someone who gets like shoved at a window because they watch an incestuous sex scene, and then elsewhere you've got like arranged marriages and stuff. So you've already got like, oh, this is so tense. Like there's loads of stuff that I'm already fascinated by, like a soap opera. And then as you say, like in Lord of the Rings, it does feel inert because the only relationships we have are between protagonists and their supporting cast in quite a sort of shallow and casual way that doesn't have much tension to it. Like I would say the characters that have the most dramatic tension are Galadriel, who's kind of role is that she's at odds with the other elves because she believes that Sauron is going to return and they are like, you have PTSD, you need to just go to the Undying Lands and chill out. And then also there's like um, Nori, the Harfoot, who has some friends and also like meets this mysterious figure who falls from the sky, which is like a cool subplot that I was enjoying. But then the others, it's like you're you're basically alone, like you're going to be interacting with supporting characters that are in for a couple of episodes, but there's not much there that feels like there's a lot of emotional drive to it, you know? And for me, like the biggest failing is um, the the main love story because it's like, that is the one story which I would automatically be interested in, right? Because like, who doesn't love a love story? It's forbidden love. And Lord of the Rings does this incredibly effectively in the movies. Even with like a tiny amount of screen time between Aragorn and Arwen, you're like, this is gorgeous. Whereas here, they've got this kind of troubling situation where it's another forbidden love story. They've created this new character, Arondir, who is played by an Afro-Latino actor. So he is kind of in a different position to the other Elvish characters who are all, first of all, played by white actors. And secondly, they're sort of important political figures who are higher up the kind of food chain of Tolkien lore, right? They're all kind of leaders and stuff like Galadriel. So it feels like there's a class difference. And then the racial subtext of his role is like kind of problematic because while Galadriel and Elrond and stuff are off doing like important political stuff, he is a working class, like he's basically like a beat cop. His job is to patrol the human villages. And one of his first scenes is just getting like racist abuse from humans. And his role is defined by the fact that he is in an interracial relationship, which could ruin either of their lives if anyone finds out. Because like a human and an elf aren't meant to be together. So it's like, First of all, his role is defined by racism, which is a problematic creative decision. And secondly, this romance, which like has the potential to be really compelling, isn't actually a romance because it's only viewed through the lens of the adversity that they're facing. You have no idea why they're in love with each other. They don't really enjoy each other's company because like they're hiding their relationship and we don't really see them together on a casual level. And it's like, that's not how you write romance. And it's far less interesting than the actively unpleasant relationships that are introduced in the first episode of Game of Thrones. And I was like, what, what is happening? What are you doing? Why did you frame it this way? <laughs> yeah, so that actor is named Ismail Cruz Cordova, and I interviewed him for Bustle. That should probably be up by the time this episode is up, if not a few days later. And he was super smart, really interesting. Um, he's from Puerto Rico. 
and was so excited about being in the show and his whole like mission in life basically has been really crafting like an interesting and varied career to basically get more representation and attention for Afro-Latino actors and um, specifically Puerto Rican actors. And watching this, I was like losing my mind because <laughs> all the stuff you said is true in terms of the like, did they seriously give the Afro-Latino guy the like species racism romance plot? Like, are you fucking kidding me? I just could not believe it. Especially because all the other elves, I believe, whom we've met so far are like named characters. Yeah. The show is visibly resistant to race bending pre-existing characters. Like there are a couple of examples when you look at the cast on IMDb, they've cast, I think they cast a person of colour as the Queen of Numenor, who I think is going to be a significant role later on. But like on the whole, it's like they're not race bending Galadriel or like Celebrimbor or any of those guys. Right. And I understand if they're thinking on like a very practical level about Galadriel, they want her to look as much like Kate Blanchett as possible, right? So like, okay, there's no fucking reason why Gilgalad, who has never appeared on screen, needs to be a tall white man, right? Like that's just not, or like even Celebrimborn, like I think we see like his hands in the prologue of the Lord of the Rings, but like it doesn't matter. And so casting this one person of color who they made a huge fucking fuss over being like the first person of color to play an elf in the Lord of the Rings. Oh my God. And he's like from a farm. He's a working class elf who's basically a cop. And I I just, I was genuinely shocked. (laughs) And like the only other, so I guess there's like a black guy who plays a Harfoot and like a, not a major the, role. The, the up to iconic, this point. iconic British celebrity Lenny Henry. Yeah, and then um, a black actress Sophia Nomvete. I apologize. In the likely event that I am mispronouncing that, should have checked in advance. Who is playing? I mean, she's Durin the Fourth's wife. She yes. is the princess of Casadum. Yes. And there are there are like several other people of color in sort of supporting roles, but like there's going to be a lot more added later in the series but i would say the show is still far more white than like the witcher for example yeah like i'm I'm on google now just like scrolling down the page with all the headshots and it's sort of primarily white people though again there are uh several we haven't met yet uh several people of color we haven't met yet and like this princess disa is her name and um she's like very fashionable and charming she's very much playing like a wife character in this but I was kind of like, okay, so the two main people of color you introduce in the first couple episodes are a dwarf and like a lower class elf. Like, I just like, think about what you're doing. How is no one advising anyone about that? Like, oh, yeah, I was not impressed by that at all, especially given the like self-congratulatory way that Amazon and the PR people have been talking about it. Like, it's a big talking point. And I just don't think they really deserve a ton of credit. Yeah. For I mean, this. I think we're kind of at this like halfway point now where most fantasy shows that are adapting things from these vaguely European historical fantasy settings understand that you cannot just cast a bunch of white people. The culture has moved on from that. It's exclusionary. But on a philosophical level, they're kind of not thinking about it in terms of world building or in terms of the optics of like the different characters they're choosing. 
which is definitely something like you see in The Witcher, something you see in The Wheel of Time. Like there's definitely situations here where like it becomes problematic. And here with Lord of the Rings, it's extremely unclear whether they've thought about like, oh, do people come from different places, for example? Or is it just sort of like, you're not meant to think about that? Because with the elves, it's like, does Arendir come from somewhere different than the other elves? All of the elves that Caladriel and Elrond are hanging out with are white. And the vast majority of the elves that are in kind of warlike positions are men. So it's not a gender equitable society, like clearly. How much of this have they thought about in terms of the world building? You know, it's very unclear. Obviously, it's just two episodes we've seen, but it definitely feels like another example of them not having extremely solid basis for like their thought process there. Yeah. And I increasingly feel, I mean, this is not a new thought that I've had, but it really, I was really feeling this watching this, that like this sort of way that representation is discussed vis-a-vis these kinds of shows is just like and lots of other media it's just like really really empty and kind of meaningless it's not that i would have like cast this show with all white people i think that would have been disgusting but it's more that like our popular culture is so dominated by this stuff that was first written or created by white men decades and decades ago and then the sort of like palliative for that is like oh we'll just cast some people of color and then it'll be fine and it's like well okay but that doesn't really make much of a difference in like the real world of like political problems right like and it feels as though and obviously i think it's really valuable to talk about this stuff like that's what we do on this podcast a huge amount of the time but it feels like it's almost a way to sort of defer actual real serious political and i mean action, we've discussed right? this on other episodes as well with a variety of different things including the original lord of the rings movies but it's like amazon would far rather they'd far rather spend half a billion dollars on making a somewhat diverse and somewhat problematic lord of the rings project than spending 10 percent of that on adapting you know a south asian fantasy novel that fewer people have heard of that could make a far more artistically interesting and revolutionary adaptation because like what they are doing here is extremely unoriginal i know it's like of course they're adapting something everyone's seen before but it's like you could have made something that was genuinely distinct on an artistic level from what peter jackson has done like the different versions of pride and prejudice are all very different from each other you know there are different ways of interpreting shakespeare you can still do an adaptation that is not experimental or weird and feels sincere but like you have to think about it very hard and for this they have hired you know the same production designer and costume designer that worked on Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and then you've got two showrunners who specialize in sort of punching up screenplays for blockbusters. Yeah and I mean I think we talked about this on our um, episode on Batman Return of the Phantasm a great film. That movie really made me think about like oh Batman was really a response to a specific sort of set of cultural circumstances from the mid-20th century. Right. And that isn't to say that people can't watch Batman movies and be like, oh, this is interesting in terms of like just being an interesting piece of art. Or you can maybe try to find some way that it's saying something now. And obviously, like one of my great passions in life is like 19th century literature. And I love early Hollywood movies. And I think you can read and watch that stuff and get so much out of it and also realize that like in many ways, a lot of things haven't changed. Right. But watching this, I again was like, Jared Tolkien wrote those books in response to a very specific time in the world and like experience he'd had 
a hundred years ago. Yeah, it's like he grew up with the tail end of 19th century romanticism and medieval fetishism, then survived World War I massively traumatised and spent that entire period for the rest of his life writing Lord of the Rings, you know? (laughs) Right, and of course, like, Peter Jackson then in the turn of the 21st century makes those movies and they resonate so much with people like there clearly is something there that is really powerful emotionally but the idea that we can just keep recycling the same stories over and over again and have them sort of speak to us in a deep way i think is just false (laughs) and that's why you need new and if you want to do that you would go to the appendices and have a much deeper discussion about like what types of story you can draw yeah. from that source material. You know, maybe that will happen in later episodes. Maybe there's going to be really interesting stuff they do with Numenor, right? But there's only six more episodes left of this eight episode season. And they've kind of introduced this beginning, which is so obviously attempting to ape Peter Jackson and like prioritizes these gorgeous production values far more than creating characters that I find interesting, you know, because it's like, I enjoyed it, but two days after watching, I'm like, do I really care that much about any of these people's emotional journey? Like, not really. I really loved Elrond because I found the actor extremely fun to watch. Like, I was like, he's great when he's on screen. I'm intrigued to find out what happens with Nori the Harfoot and her weird pal, who I think we can all identify, but, you know, whatever. But, like, you know, I think about the first episodes of shows that I really love, and I'm like, those things have, like, an immediate, like, thematic punch. They have characters where I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck's going on? You know? Yeah, and I mean, we should get into talking more about some of the other characters. I feel like we've said all there is to say about around here at this point. Sorry. But, obviously, the big selling point for this, and the person who was advertised kind of as the main lead, although it's definitely an ensemble, um, was Galadriel was played by Morpheth Clark, who was the lead of St. Maud, which I believe was your favorite movie the year it, it came was out. my Am favorite I movie of I think 2020. Um she's also yeah. really great in several other roles in like smaller smaller yeah. roles and stuff like David Copperfield. So the show begins, the first episode, with a sort of like, I don't know, flashback to when Galadriel is like a young girl, obviously played by a younger actor. And, like, is being bullied by the other little elf girls because she's just different and they don't understand her. And, like, her older brother gives her, like, a pep talk. And then she winds up becoming this warrior. And then people still don't understand her when she's like, no, Sauron is coming back. And I was, from that first scene with the little girl version of her, I was, like, losing my mind. It felt like a very sort of YAification of the character in a way I didn't find interesting. And, um... In a weird way, it kind of felt like the way they were sort of portraying her, which is that these male elves in positions of power are sort of dismissing her and not taking her seriously, and that her way of expressing her own power is to sort of fight physically. It kind of felt weirdly more sexist to me than the books, which admittedly have almost no women in them. At all. Well, this is the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies effect, where it's yeah. like, this book is so old fashioned that these women need to have like power and be able to fight. And it's like, well, Galadriel is extremely powerful because she's like a really scary supernatural creature who also is a queen. Right. And obviously, Eowyn has that kind of like, I want to fight and no one's going to let me thing, which I think he executes really well. And then Arwen is just like 
a beautiful lady. And then Galadriel is one of the most powerful and scary characters in the book, but also really awe-inspiring and, like, people are devoted to her. And I always am irked when this solution is, like, she's gotta be a badass and fight. And I'm like, I that's not... I mean, if that's, like, true to the character... Mm-hmm then great. Like, Eowyn, that makes sense. I mean, the idea of her being a warrior, like, I care about less than you. Like, I do kind of agree with your criticisms, but the parts that I enjoyed most with Galadriel were when she was on the boat. Well, why don't you explain a bit what happens? They've constructed this conflict, which I don't believe necessarily, like, reflects the relationship that the elves had politically with the Undying Lands. But basically, as a result of, like, her completing her quest she and her troop of elves are given a promotion which allows them to return to the Undying Lands, um, which is basically elf heaven. Yeah, to a way more explicit degree than in the books. Like, they're about to be raptured. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they go on this boat, like, across the ocean, and um, just as all the other elves are, like, singing and about to be raptured, she just has doubts. She's like, I've got unfinished business in Middle-earth. I know Sauron's out there. So she, like, dives off the boat. And I was like, this is actually kind of interesting. Like, it feels mystical in a way that a lot of the show basically fails to do and then after sort of swimming around in the ocean for a while like in a storm she's picked up by this boat of humans like this i mean it's a shipwreck that's been attacked by a huge worm and she ends up kind of on this little ship with a boring human hunk who unfortunately is going to have a significant role in the series um but i kind of like the way she was characterized there because like you can see the seeds of her being a sort of intimidating leader in future but she just feels like less mature than the version I kind of think of as Kate Blanchett and I think like it sort of your attitude to that depends on whether you think that elves should or shouldn't mature just as a concept because I definitely can understand the argument that like part of the point of elves is that they don't change very much and they have static personalities that are inhuman and immortal And here it does feel like this is her at a more volatile age before she has experienced what it's like to have a lot of power and that's changed her as a person. Yeah, I think that I just really didn't like that at all. And part of that (laughs) is, as you can tell, as everyone listening can tell, I just didn't like this. I mean, they've basically written themselves into a corner, right? Because so much of what's appealing about these characters or distinctive about them in the books and the movies, is that they have this aura. And Galadriel specifically, I mean, as played by Kate Blanchett, is so mesmerizing. I mean, she's only in that movie briefly, and she doesn't appear again until the very end of the last one for, like, one shot. Like, it's a very small role. But it's very, very memorable. And by doing, like, an origin story thing, they're basically sacrificing a lot of that. And then replacing it with something more generic. Which is an origin story thing, which we've seen many times before. And I think depending on your sort of level of enjoyment of that stuff, that could be fun. But for me, it was like, well, this just feels so much like so many other things and not like Lord of the Rings. So like, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) that works a lot better for Elrond than it does for Galadriel, because Elrond is a less of a mythical feeling figure, you know? So it's like there's more flexibility for him to just be like, I'm a civil servant. (laughs) I mean, I found him fairly boring, but I definitely agree that it feels less egregious. I mean, you you should talk about him because you were 
you were way more I loved him. Than <laughs> I, I just find him I, I find him very but, you know. fun because the humor in this show is largely quite broad. It's got this thing that the movies have, and obviously the books do too, where there's this sort of British class divide between, you know, the elves are these sort of Aryan aristocrats, and then, you know, you've got the hobbits who are like the rude mechanicals, and then the dwarves. And like the dwarves and the hobbits have these really broad regional accents. Um, The two dwarves, they've got a Welsh guy doing a very convincing Scottish accent and a very Scottish guy doing a Scottish accent, obviously. And then all of the Harfoots are Irish. So they're like, here's this Irish village of people who live on berries and are covered in mud. And I was like, okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> the way the dwarves and the hobbits are portrayed is very sort of, oh, here's some like jaunty, fun little farmer humor. And with Elrond, it just felt like it was the kind of humor that's like very performance-based. The personality of that character is almost entirely shining through in that actor. Whereas the characterization for Galadriel, like by the nature of the writing, is far more didactic. Like the story is telling you explicitly what her role is. So it's kind of a a different kind of part that like maybe allows for less flexibility from the actor themselves, if you see what I mean. Yes, I agree. We should talk a bit about the Harfoots in quote, which again, just like comical. <laughs> it's like legally speaking the hobbits and the shire don't exist yet, but like there were three precursor races that became the hobbits and um they are absolutely indistinguishable from the hobbits except they are travelers. And also Tolkien in the appendices is like the hobbits did nothing during the second age. They were unimportant, they weren't involved, and the showrunners were like, "Well, we got to have hobbits." So They do got to have hobbits. Something. And also, think about all the information that was lost from the second age just because there's no written record. <laughs> I think it's completely reasonable that there's like one or two adventurous harfits went out and did whatever it was they did. I like Nori. She seems like a sweet girl. Yeah, so Nori is played by Markella Cavanaugh, who I think is the performance standout to me so far. Um, I don't think she's been tasked with anything like massively complicated, but I thought she was really charming. Also, crucially though, she feels like a person, right? Because it's like... This is it, yeah. <laughs> because the elves don't really feel like people. The dwarves obviously don't feel like people because they're like, they're absurd dwarf caricatures. And then the only humans we've really seen are Arendir's girlfriend, which is a pretty limited role, and um, the guy that Galadriel's hanging out with in the boat, who hasn't done much yet. Whereas Nori, it's like she's the classic role where it's like you need someone who is the audience engagement character, like Frodo or Bilbo. And you have to have someone who is just like extremely charming. And her job is to be interested in everything and she doesn't have to have any kind of power. So it's like simultaneously great actress and also like a much easier role to write and perform. <laughs> yes. And I think this is pretty much one of her very first jobs and they were shooting for two years so i don't know this is probably yeah she's 21 she was in the tv series a picnic at hanging rock she was in the 2019 movie true history of the kelly gang but like this is obviously like her big breakout i think she may have been cast in this before she was cast in anything else Very possibly. Um, but in any event she's very young quite green and i just was really charmed by her it was kind of refreshing. So I had watched doing research for my coverage of this on the site, some sort of videos from Comic-Con and stuff, because there's really no information available about her on the internet at all. And I had thought I was going to interview her. And um, she obviously looks very fashionable because she's doing press at Comic-Con. And she's playing a fucking hobbit. So like, it's not that she doesn't look pretty, like she's a very pretty face, but she's just 
wearing kind of like hobbit clothes and just got like the curly wig and you know and it just was very nice to be like oh right this is just like not about her being sexy at all she's just like playing a nice girl and uh that's kind of it and i thought that was very very cute so yeah i definitely liked that part the most i wasn't like blown away by it or anything but i just found her really charming and the mysterious visitor from the sky who we won't mention further like pretty much figure out what's going on there fast but um that was that was you know fun yeah I think we should talk a bit about the, more about the costumes and the hair before we conclude. You mentioned Aaron Deer's girlfriend. I just need you to talk a little <laughs> bit about her dress situation. Oh, I was I was truly cracking up. This show has far more female characters than Lord of the Rings. I honestly wasn't even thinking about it consciously at all. You cannot make TV shows that are original with that many men without a good reason. So like, fine. <laughs> but like, she's like an apothecary um, in like a little peasant village. <laughs> And she's wearing this like extremely cleavagey outfit, but the character doesn't have like a cleavagey personality. Like she's not meant to be like a sexy character, but she's wearing this sort of strappy smock thing. And I was just like, you're going to drop one of your herbal tinctures down your boobs. (laughs) And also like all of the female characters, apart from the hobbits, she's wearing very clearly a full face of makeup. Like Galadriel is wearing a full face of makeup quite a lot, but it's clearly meant to be no makeup makeup. And I'm like, she has eyeshadow on. Oh my god, I'm so glad you reminded me of this because I was texting you about this while I was watching in just outrage. Well, number one on the dress, she looks like a yoga instructor. Like, it's a dress on a top, but it is full-on, like, yoga instructor, like, it's a like a tank top thing. Her arms are completely bare, and I was like, this is so impractical. Like, what the, f- what the fuck is this? But yes, the makeup is just appalling. <laughs> Obviously, anyone who's gonna be in a movie or TV show like this is going to have makeup on, of course, but we shouldn't be able to see their lip gloss. Like, that is not what I want. And so you've got Galadriel, who you were pointing out to me, Kate Blanchett, quite famously, in her movie appearance, doesn't look like she's wearing makeup particularly, because she's just like a being yeah. from the trees, right? And so Morpheus Clark having on this like very noticeable makeup, which is partly the sort of effect of like HD cameras, I think, but it was really glaring. And then this apothecary woman, like living in her little hut, in like the <laughs> With middle her, of like, nowhere. tinted eyebrows. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Like, the- it's also like, it's just, I mean, it's it's a bad creative decision. Balanced out by the fact that wigs in this show are amazing. I think that was like the oh main God. thing both of us said on social media because you're oh. not allowed to say anything about the show. But it's like the wigs, when you look at the fucking new Game of Thrones show, which has the worst wigs imaginable and the general average quality of wigs overall on television, the wigs in this are fantastic. There are people fucking going underwater. It looks great. I do definitely have a bone to pick with the fact that loads of elvish men have short hair. And it's like, why don't elvish women have short hair? Why doesn't everyone have long hair? I disagree with it on a philosophical level, but we don't need to go into that. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's very silly, but I was incredibly impressed by the overall quality of the wigs. I still think the best wigs I've ever seen in a movie or slash movies are in those original Yeah, the films. Lord of the Rings wigs are incredible. Obviously, it is an art to do this stuff, but watching this, I was then thinking about those, and these aren't quite as good as them, but they're really great. And I was like, okay, so obviously it's possible <laughs> to do this. So like, why is every wig I see in anything so terrible? I know that some shows don't have as high a budget or whatnot, but something like Game of Thrones, which obviously does not have any sort of significant budgetary restrictions in this way, like, what the fuck are they doing? I just don't, I don't understand. Yeah. Galadriel's hair, gorgeous. Just 
tremendous. Uh, back to our sort of gowns, beautiful gowns comment. Like, that was pretty much how I felt about this show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have spent so much money. Like, the production design is incredible. There is loads yeah. of beautiful locations. As I was watching, I was like, my God, they are just going from place to place. You can tell a show is expensive when instead of just reusing the same, like, four sets, they're just going to, like, dozens of locations, which they do, you know, they are taking a full-on trip around Middle-earth here. And um, it was really cool to see Casa Doom sort of, like, in its golden age. Obviously, that's CGI. It's a big contrast with watching the Star Wars and Marvel shows, which are filmed inside, like, a dome and look terrible. I would say about the CGI, so I don't watch those Star Wars shows. I completely believe you that this looks way better. I think overall the CGI is very well done. I think, like, in general, the show looks really good. I think it is hard, and it's not really anyone involved in this. Like, it's not their fault. But it's impossible not to compare this to those movies, as we have been doing this entire episode. And I felt like I was thinking a lot watching this just about, like, those movies are right at the tail end of when they have some CGI in them, but it's much, 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 much less than anything you would have now. Yeah. And um, there's just so much more life and texture in yeah. those films than in anything. And in this, even though there clearly are a lot of physical props, and I think the CGI is done well, it's still, you can kind of tell. Yeah. And it's I mean, that's also kinda, partly you know, the issue of movies versus TV as a director-focused medium rather than a producer-writer-focused medium, right? Because, like, Peter Jackson is, like, in charge of this huge pool of creative talent to make those movies and himself had a very specific vision and was collaborating with all of them. And obviously, this project also was a crucial collaboration, but, like, you had people coming in from different places. So it's like you had John Howe, the guy who drew a lot of the important production design for Lord of the Rings movies, was involved in this. So he's not someone who was brought in by the showrunners. The showrunners, it's unclear to what extent they had a visual language of their own because like, they have never produced anything before. They've never been in charge of a project before, right? So like, there's a lot of disparate parts here which kind of speak to the idea of there not being a particular person in charge who had this like vision of their own. And when you watch stuff like, I always go back to Hannibal, right? Because like Hannibal is a TV show. Like the visual language is not designed by a specific director. It is from Brian Fuller, the showrunner and the people he worked with because he is extremely visually oriented. And that's why this show looks so distinct. And like there's other shows which have extremely distinctive aesthetics because the showrunners are interested in that sort of thing. And with this, it's like they are very specifically interested in finding ways to recreate what Lord of the Rings looks like. Yep, I think that's all very well said. And a lot of the ways that they made the Lord of the Rings are just not really commonly done anymore. Like, they used tons of models. Yeah. So many models and backdrops. And I'm sure you could get someone to do that now, but it's not really a thing. And I think the difference between, like, having a model of Rivendell or of Gondor, although we haven't been to Gondor yet on this show versus like the CGI sort of painting of that is makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I mean the difference between the cinematographers who are working in television and then the singular cinematographer who is in charge of camera work on a film. Yeah, so it all just feels kind of like it's a step down, which is a problem with Amazon deciding to do this in the first place more than any one individual person. Like I think most of the people involved in this are super talented. Like it's not, you know, anybody's particular failing, um, except maybe the writing, which I think is not great. The writing is not great. I mean, the whole nope. thing is Amazon has purchased an extremely lucrative piece of intellectual property and they are trying to get 
as much success financially as they can out of that property by doing something relatively low risk and then marketing the hell out of it. And um, it remains to be seen how, what happens with that, you know. I think a lot of people are extremely nostalgia driven in their entertainment consumption. And I guess we're just going to have to see whether people are like, this is fine. Or if people are really wild for it. Like, I know there's going to be talking heads who are either enraged or absolutely obsessed and are like, I'm so excited to see this character who like no one's heard of from the appendices. I think people are going to be excited for Numenor because that is the place where it is going to be kind of original. Like, I, I kind of messaged you, like I was listening to the music which is actually already available like they released all the music even though they're obsessed with hiding everything else and I was listening to like the music for Numenor and I was like I think Numenor is going to be kind of ancient Greek and Rome inspired and as I was looking into just the background research for this episode I saw (laughs) that I was indeed correct although there also is apparently some uh, Renaissance Venice in there because like the music I was like oh this is definitely Orientalist with Roman and Greek subtext. (laughs) It's just your magical ability strikes again. So, mixed negative on the rings of power, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think Amazon is bad and nothing should be this expensive. I pretty much enjoyed watching it. I think it's very unoriginal. And um, I'm morbidly curious to see what this means for Amazon Studios in general, because they are reputedly really hanging a lot of their success on this very high-risk operation. Because, like, people aren't buying tickets to this. Like, they're like, we're going to spend half a billion dollars in this in the hopes that people will reactivate their Amazon Prime accounts to watch it. Yeah, I have no clue. In any case, that's our thoughts on that. Thanks to everyone for listening. We will put links in the show notes to our trio of episodes on the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which are uh, more positive than this episode has been. We love those films. Next week, we will be doing another dive into uh, some period sort of fantasy adjacent material with uh, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, which neither of us had seen. It was a listener request <laughs> and we watched it. And um, LOL, that's my review. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Guy Ritchie, we're just going to put him on that psychiatrist's couch and we're going to have to redact most of the stuff we say about his brain because we might get sued. Yeah too much yeah and then we have we have a bunch of other requests um that we will get to yeah i mean there's another amazon show which is a few years old called patriot which we will be reviewing relatively soon because it's been on the docket for a while i watched the first episode and i was like it's really good it's about like a depressed american uh cia agent so it's right up morgan street yes i have in fact watched this show before i really like it so those will be the next two episodes and then we've got fall movie season we've got the film festivals and all these other requests so we'll have lots of fun stuff coming for you if you would like to support our work and or request an episode for us to talk about you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast we also greatly appreciate five star ratings or reviews you can do that at apple podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use um it's super helpful for visibility and Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, which obviously includes my review of this. Uh, please read and share. <laughs> um, and also you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor and on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Bustle, where I also have some Lord of the Rings coverage. Uh, very carefully making sure not to say the show is bad, because that's how explainers work but yeah some interesting explainers and 
my interview with Ismail Cruz Cordova, who is super interesting. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.